Hello and welcome to episode 33 of the Telling the Story podcast, a look at how journalists and everyone reach the world. I am Matt Pearl, author of the Telling the Story blog and a reporter at NBC in Atlanta. I had the pleasure last month of speaking at the NPPA's Northwest Storytelling Workshop. It was a real treat speaking in front of a combination of some of our industry's best storytellers and some storytellers in training, younger journalists looking to learn. I really enjoy speaking at these conferences in part because after I speak, I then get to listen to other people speak. And my guest tonight had a presentation that truly touched me. She is a photographer for Como TV in Seattle. She spoke about covering a tragedy last year that hit way too close to home. When the Como helicopter, the chopper, crashed in downtown Seattle, killing two of her coworkers. She gave an extraordinary presentation last month, and I thought she would be a great guest here. So Katie Stern, thank you for joining me, and welcome to the Telling the Story podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Katie, uh, again, I want to first of all thank you just for your willingness to talk about this. It was plenty enough that you did it once at the workshop, but I just think you gave such a real lesson on what it's like to do your job while dealing with traumatic emotions. It's a lesson really worth spreading. And I guess my first question to you is, at what point did you decide you should start to speak publicly about this? Well, honestly, after the, um, the chopper crash, uh, with the exception of my immediate family, I don't want to talk about this with anybody. It was, it was very difficult to talk about. Um, there was a very, there was a few family members and a few journalist friends who I knew would understand, um, that I opened up to, and that was it. Um, but the further away I got from it, the more I felt the impact of it. And honestly, the folks who hosted the NPPA workshop approached me about speaking about it. And at first I was very hesitant. Um, It's a very difficult topic to speak about. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that's a problem. It is a problem that we are not speaking about this. Um, and And I think... Um, for our industry, the more we talk about, the more we understand how these kind of things can affect us both professionally and personally, we can only grow from there. So really it was when, um, the folks who were hosting the NPPA Northwest storytelling workshop asked me if I would speak about it, that I really thought about speaking about it publicly. And I ultimately made the decision to do so because I feel like it's an important topic that needs to be broached more often in more newsrooms um, before something happens. Now, it's been more than a year since this particular incident happened. When you spoke in Seattle, I know so many there were uh, all too familiar with it. Many had covered it that day. But for the audience here, can you give a brief recap of how this story unfolded and how the day unfolded for you and your newsroom? Absolutely. So it was March 18th. I believe it was a Wednesday. Um, My shift started just like any other day, walked in at seven, checked in with the assignment desk, grabbed a cup of tea, and I was speaking with one of our other photographers. When out of the corner of my eye, I saw this shadow fly past our newsroom window, and I thought it was a crane. Um, immediately started yelling to the newsroom, call 911. The other photographer and I ran downstairs, grabbed our gear, 
And as we exited the parking garage onto the street where the accident happened, you could just feel the heat from the crash. The, the jet fuel was in full blown, full force. And that was, that was probably one of the hardest things that I've ever done is to take that next step after realizing that is our chopper. There are two people in that chopper that I know have lost their lives that are friends and colleagues of mine. Now I have to do my job. And, and that's basically what I did. Uh, I made that choice to take that next step. And over the next eight hours, basically, um, I was the roving camera. I got the interviews. Um, I got a lot of the B-roll. I was never tethered to a live shot until our 11 a.m. show started. The accident happened at around 7.20 in the morning, 7.30. So during that time, I basically hooked up with two or three reporters throughout the day. And it was just my responsibility to make sure I was getting as much of the story as I could gather. I imagine that when something like that happens, and again, when, you, when it first happened, you didn't know it was the Como Chopper. But it was a major breaking news story happening right in front of you, and everybody springs into action. And as a result of that, when it does turn up that it is, in fact, your station and your coworkers, that news has to filter through the newsroom in its own way. And, and I'm guessing people – it wasn't as if the whole newsroom found out about it all at once. It was the kind of thing where everybody had to find out on their own and – I would imagine that added a large degree of chaos, a large degree of difficulty in terms of just collectively controlling emotions. Absolutely. Um, for, for me, when I stepped out of the building the first time, even though it was engulfed in flames, Air 4 was still intact. So when I walked out of the building, I knew immediately that that was our chopper. You could see the logo clear as day. But nobody else in the newsroom knew that. Um, so, and certainly couldn't say that on air. It, it, was, it was very difficult throughout the day to make sure that everybody was getting the information that they needed. We, we were trying our best to just gather the story without breaking down. And everybody upstairs in the station was trying to get that information out also without breaking down. And because we were using live views and therefore using our phones uh, for IFB, there was a lot of information that was not getting through to the photographers on the ground. For example, I didn't know who had passed until I heard it uh, when we announced it on air. And that was simply because there was no way to tell me without physically sending somebody from upstairs downstairs to let me know. And in the chaos of trying to make sure that we're all of our information is correct. And where we were, we were straight live from seven 30 on um, it, it was definitely a challenge and it, it made it really, really hard for us out in the field uh, because we would kind of get large bubbles of information every time you would turn your phone off from IFB and back into where you could get emails or get phone calls or receive voicemails. And so for me, the hardest part of that chaotic communication 
And I'm not really sure how you prevent that, but the hardest part for me was hearing the names of who had passed in the accident read on air. And I would imagine every time you were able to access your phone, you almost had to brace yourself because you knew that you didn't know what you were going to hear or see when you checked your email and and so on and so forth. Absolutely. And honestly, I knew what I needed to be doing. I had IFB in, so the booth was talking to me. So I was making a decision to not check my email as frequently as I normally would because I did have direct access to the booth. Um, And since we were going live, I had a live view at that point in the day. Um, You know, it, I was getting all the information that I needed and that I could handle. And so when that was done, when we were done with the live shot and I could kind of steal myself, that was when I actually started reading all of the emails. The, the thing that was also very, very difficult was it was not a contained scene. We were at the science, the, the, the Space Needle. We were we were at the Pacific Science Center. I mean, it's it's the Seattle Center. There's a McDonald's. There's tourists. There's local. It's just the throngs of people, and so we have this huge, major breaking news scene in the middle of Seattle Metropolitan downtown. There's people everywhere, and so you are trying to hold yourself together from the emotions of having lost somebody. You're trying to act like a professional journalist and do your job and make sure that you're not missing things and that you're getting the interviews you need and the video that you need. Additionally, you're standing on a street corner and there are people all over the place. And I had so many people walk up and, can I give you a hug? I'm so sorry. I know that's the Como chopper. Can I give you a hug? I'm so sorry for your loss. And we had people, person after person after person coming up and saying these things and uh, sharing their condolences with us, which while um, appreciated and um, understanding that it was very heartfelt and very genuine, the amount of emotion that was coming at us when I'm trying to hold myself together, that was actually really hard to deal with. It was amazing that our community felt um, so strongly and was and was so welcoming and, and, and open to us and our grief and, and trying to let us know that they were there for us. But it did make it very hard on that day to, to keep myself in a professional mode. Yeah. And, you know, obviously we cover tragedies all the time in local news and, and different people certainly handle it different ways. Things can get emotional even when you're not directly involved. But how does that situation change when suddenly you're involved in the tragedy and you can't keep your emotions down as I'm sure I know you expressed when you spoke at the workshop. Was there any way to try to separate or compartmentalize or was it all just, you know, I'm a person and I'm a journalist at the same time. And on this day, those two things are just going to have to coexist. Well, I, it's, it's going to be different for, for every person, um, your life experiences, your experiences on the job, um, your relationship to the, the accident in front of you. Um, but it, for me, 
when I first stepped out of the building, there was definitely a moment of breakdown. There was definitely, I started sobbing. Um, I, I was having a hard time breathing. You know, I, I wanted to run up to that helicopter and drag out whomever was in there because I knew that whomever it was, was someone that I, I cared for and, and had, you know, their life was very valuable to me. And, and so there was that, that moment of being just purely human. And those are my friends that I have just lost and, and a feeling of complete breakdown. But then you realize, okay, they're journalists. They would need me to do my best for them today. So I need to do that. And that was a conversation that I had running in my head the entire time I was there. And there were moments when I lost it and I was crying and I would do things like, you know, literally bite the sleeve of my jacket to try to prevent myself from sobbing loudly. So you didn't hear it in my gnat sound as a photographer, I was thinking about that, but really I just decided I need to do my best because that's what they deserve. And I just kind of kept saying that mantra in my head over and over again. And I tried really hard to just pull that screen down and say, this is my time to be professional. When this is done, when my live shots are over, I will grieve. I will grieve as a friend. I will grieve as, as a person and, and not as a journalist. But right now I really need to pull that screen down and say, I have a job to do. I need to do my best. Um, you know, and I know I'm repeating myself, but I need to do my best because that's what they deserve. And I just need to try to steal myself up as best as I can and constantly keep myself moving forward. What do I need to do next? Who do I need to talk to? What video do I need? What cutaways do I need? What sound do I not have? What angle am I missing? The more that I thought about what I needed to do for my job, the easier it was for me to keep my emotions at bay. Now, you've mentioned several times about how you heard who the victims actually were just before a live shot. You talk about keeping your emotions at bay. I would imagine that that was probably the toughest moment were there ways that was there anything you could do at that moment take me through what it was like for you well fortunately we were in queue to be live but we were not the the very next live shot i there was somebody immediately before us but we were coming up within 30 seconds and I had my IFB in and I heard Dan Lewis say the names. Um, Denise Whitaker and I were working together at that, at that moment. And I heard the names come across and I just turned to Denise and I, I, I said, what did they just say? Cause in my head, it wasn't really registering. It couldn't have been Bill. It couldn't have been Gary. That it wasn't, that's not possible. I mean, I didn't believe it could be anybody because I was so upset, but she just looked at me and said it was Bill and Gary. And quite frankly, I, I couldn't hold it together. I, I completely lost it. I started sobbing. You know, she hugged me and, and she said, we're going to get through this. We're going to be okay. Um, and she just honestly held me and, and, and let me kind of have that moment where I wasn't able to hold myself together. Um, it felt like that lasted forever, but it was probably about 15 seconds. And then I kind of stepped back 
took a deep breath and she just looked at me and said, okay, what do we do now? And I said, when is our next hit? And she was like, we've got 15 seconds. Mm. And she walked around the front of the camera, took a couple deep breaths. I took a couple deep breaths and she went. And I basically set my shot and took my hands off the camera because I didn't think I'd be able to hold a steady shot. Wow. Unbelievable. So it was, it was absolutely, um, with the exception of the very first realization that it was our chopper, that it was our people that we had lost. That was absolutely the hardest part of the day was the, the, it, it was like, okay, now it's real. Now I know who we lost. Now there's no going back. There's no hope. This is, this is real. This has really happened. We have really lost these people. Um, and I, I just, I, tried my best and I just couldn't, I just couldn't hold myself together. Uh, when, when that, when I heard it on the IFB, when I heard Dan Lewis say that, and of course, if you know, Dan, you know, that he's the kind of anchor who you knew he was a person, you knew he was a real human being. You knew that when he was reading the news, he was doing with feeling and emotion. So it wasn't like when they said the names, it came across as this very stoic, unemotional, um, announcement. It was very personal and you could hear Dan's voice. He was choking up. And so hearing it that way with said with so much emotion, so much feeling, so much genuine um, care for the people who we lost that of course, you know, made it even harder to emotionally steel yourself against um, hearing that. And, uh, and I'd be remiss if I didn't say the full names of the victims. I don't think we've done that yet, but a uh, longtime Como photographer, Bill Strothman, and a pilot, Gary Fitzner. Um, obviously, this was such a harrowing day for everyone there. At what point after your shift ended, and I'm not even sure how long that shift was. I'm, I'm assuming it was a long, long day. I'm assuming you worked through pretty much every newscast? I I actually didn't. Um, I... Como was great about that. I started my day at seven and we basically, we, we went live, I believe at seven thirty five or seven thirty three, And we stayed live, um, until after the 11 o'clock show when the 11 o'clock show ended, um, all the fire was out the plane. Um, the bodies had been removed uh, NTSB was on scene. So the scene had kind of stabilized. And so they let me go. And so those of us who had worked the morning shift, um, and those of us who had come in early, um, we were, we, there was no, it was no questions. We were allowed to leave. And so I, I basically started my shift at seven and I worked until one o'clock or so, um, at which point I was just in a complete daze and needed to sit around in the newsroom in a quiet corner and cry for about an hour before I felt like I was okay to drive home. Um, so I was very fortunate that when that first round of live shots that went through the 11 o'clock show was done, I was actually, um, as were all the other morning crew folks, allowed to, to go home. Mm. Very, very, uh, I'm sure, an appreciated decision uh, on your end. What, uh, 
as we kind of move the timeline forward a little bit here, in the, let's say, the week that followed and, and maybe in the, the months that followed, what did the station do to take care of its employees? Obviously, all of you had gone through such a traumatic experience. And, you know, I know you were talking during the workshop about it, it was very much like a, a PTSD syndrome in a way where if you, you know, compress and, and keep your emotions down so much and never let them out that you really, it could really hurt you long term. What did the station do in the immediate aftermath to help you guys out? So on the day of, they, by the time I got back into the station after the 11 o'clock show, they had, if I remember correctly, three counselors already there who were there um, in the newsroom and were available to talk to us um, immediately right at that point in time. Um, they, they made sure that we knew that counselors were available, that it, we, we were covered for that, and they encouraged us to reach out to the counselors that were um, available to us. And a lot of it was just talk to one another. Talk to people, talk to your coworkers, talk to your family, make sure that this is not something that you are just bottling up and holding in. Make sure that if you need something, you reach out. We've got resources for you if you want them. There are people here who will listen. Whatever you need, just make sure if you need it, you reach out for it. So that was um, kind of the the immediate aftermath. Um, however, four days later we had Oso. And so like the journalist staff, journalistic staff that we have, people just kind of immediately went into, okay, now it's our time to reach out to this part of our community. It's time to do our job for this part of the community and we need to be focusing on them. So it was definitely an odd experience because we moved from our tragedy into one of the, if not the largest tragedy our state has ever experienced and that was, this may sound slightly crass, but that was oddly healing because we had people who were suffering from that tragedy comforting us at the same time that we were trying to comfort them. So while we were dealing with the tragedy, so was a very large part of our community. And as odd as that sounds, there was definitely a, a mutual respect and um uh, um, opening of arms and opening of hearts um, to us um, and and to our community as a, as a whole. And it, it was a very unique, very interesting, very different experience. Mm -hmm. And um, so not to say that our grief got put on the back burner, but it was, it was definitely a very interesting time because we so quickly had to transition from grieving for our own loss into dealing with this huge loss of our community of 41 people who had passed in the Oso mudslide. Yeah. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I'm Matt Pearl. She is Katie Stern, photojournalist for Como TV in Seattle. Katie, uh, as we've said, it's been more than a year now, and obviously you've reflected so much on this, and you were able to articulate those reflections so beautifully uh, at the workshop back in June. What are some of the things that you took away from this experience that someone who has not gone through something like this, and I mean specifically uh, journalists dealing with tragedy 
personally and professionally at the same time because obviously you know we've all had uh we've all had tragedies in our lives uh, personally but rarely does it coalesce like it did for you guys what are some of the things that you've taken away from this experience that folks who haven't gone through it should really be aware of well i think the first thing is to understand that um All of these factors, when you step into a breaking news scene, whether it is a fatal car crash, whether it's a natural disaster like a tornado, or whether it's, um, you know, something that you are personally affected with, it affects you. And it affects you greatly. Um, Stress, fear, grief, all of those things that you may be experiencing when you step into that scene, they're going to affect you. They're going to affect your ability to communicate. They're going to affect your ability to do your job. And and really, I think if you can step into any kind of breaking news scene, especially one that affects you personally, understanding that it's okay to feel those emotions and it's it's normal to feel upset and to feel scared and to feel grief and just understand that those are normal human reactions to what it is that you're seeing and then be able to take that in stride and say, okay, I am feeling these things. This is what is going on. But right now I need to do my job as a journalist and I need to be able to say, okay, I am not going to, um, hide these feelings that I am that are coming up within me right now but I'm I am going to kind of separate myself as best as I can work on what I need to work on right now and then when I am in a safe place when when I am no longer on the shift when I have time to decompress I'm going to deal with all of those emotions so Everybody will deal with that differently, but I think if you go in knowing this will affect me, um, this is going to be hard. I am a human, and while I don't want to cry, that might happen. How do I deal with that? If you can kind of go into a breaking news scene understanding that things are going to affect you and you need to find whatever method works for you to work through that, so that you can get to a safe place and deal with those emotions afterward, I, I think that's I think that's the key. I think there's a very fine line and a balancing act between you know being human and being a journalist. And I, I thought it was very interesting something that you said uh, way back at the start of this podcast when you were talking about how the situation unfolded. Even before you knew it was your station's chopper your first instinct was to tell someone to call 911. And your first reaction in that situation was as a human, not as, oh, let me get my camera and start shooting this. It was, let's make sure we get someone to call 911 right away. And that will always be a fine line, and it will always be determined by the scene that you are confronted with and and your personal experience. We've seen many stories where journalists have stepped in to help somebody in need in in many situations. Um, But I I think that's a line that individually you have to decide um, where that is and and how you deal with it. But you're right. My, My automatic first reaction was call 911. My second reaction was get my camera. One of the most powerful things you did uh, before you spoke at the NPPA workshop was 
you collected all of your colleagues' thoughts about covering tragedies in general and, and specifically what had happened in this case. It seemed like the answers really had a lot of variety and diversity to them. I don't know, was there a unifying theme that, that you saw, and were there any answers or responses that felt particularly poignant and significant? Well, I definitely, in preparation for the NPPA workshop, I definitely wanted to make sure that I was providing whomever attended with some valuable tools and valuable insight. Um, I hoped that my personal experience would shed a little bit of light on maybe how deeply this will affect you and, and how you can maybe try to work through it. But I'm only one person and everybody reacts differently. So it was very important that I ask the, insta- the entire staff at Como to participate. And everybody emailed me with thoughts and um, ideas on and things that they do personally when they're stepping on a breaking news scene. And above all else, it was respect. Remember to be respectful. Remember to treat every scene and every person on that scene with a level of professional courtesy that that we would have hoped would have been extended to us during our grieving at the Air Force crash site. And it was. Um, so I think everybody had something different to say, a different experience, a different way that they handle stepping into breaking news. Some people... Um, talked about similar things that I did where they try and steal themselves and kind of bring down that, that barrier and say, okay, right now I have a job to do as a journalist. I will do my job as a human being when I have finished my task. But with the exception of that, which was echoed by several, several people, really it was be respectful and treat everybody on every scene with dignity. Um, because, they're going through something that is, has, will forever change their lives. Hmm. I, when, when I go out to cover a tragedy in someone's life, I always feel like the way that I look at it is, is that the best thing that I can do is tell that person's story the way that it needs to be told. And I think it makes me. Uh, I think it makes my story better at the end of the day. But I also think it gives me a way to channel my emotions. And granted, I don't know that there's anything that I've covered that even approaches uh, this particular story. But I do know that, you know, I think it's very easy as journalists to kind of steal ourselves off very quickly and just not want to even think about what people are going through because it would take an emotional toll. Maybe not that day. Maybe not that week. But covering stories like that over and over and over again. And I would imagine going through something like this, it reminds you how important it is to obviously respect the victim, but also to try to not necessarily empathize, but understand that person's emotions so that you can tell their story. Well, that's that's our job. Our job is to tell their story because that's what we do. That's how humans connect is we're storytellers. And, and we want to have that common bond, that common experience with one another. Um, our history was passed down through stories. And really, that's our job today. So if you're not reaching out to that emotional level with those people on that day, which can be very hard to do, I think you're missing a huge opportunity to allow them the opportunity to really have their story 
shared with the greater community, which I think can only strengthen us um, all. Beautifully put, beautifully put. Um, one last thing I wanted to ask about, and, and you touched on it a little bit, but how important was discussing the situation after it happened? Obviously, you know, you made a big leap to talk to a large audience uh, when you spoke in Seattle and you talked a little bit about what that process was like, but I'm sure at some point it was essential to just talk about what had happened, what you went through with other people in general, even in a one-on-one situation. It, it was it was absolutely essential. It was hard. It was not something I wanted to do. I did not want to talk about it. Every time I even thought about Bill or thought about Gary, I, I would get emotional and I would start getting worked up and I'd have to calm myself down. But the 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 only thing that really truly helped me move from um a place where the sound of a helicopter, the sound of a siren, um, the, the, the sight of smoke wouldn't just totally shut me down was honestly talking to my husband, talking to my family and talking to other journalists, which was actually key. My friends did not understand the, the friends that I had that were not in the news business most of them have never seen a fatal car crash. They've never seen a fatal house fire. Those sort of experiences, they, they cannot relate to. And so my family, they know my job. I've talked about my job a lot. They understand. But my friends who are not in the business, they had a really hard time um, knowing what to say to make me feel better. And, and so... Talking to my friends who were in the business or who had been in the business, there's just something about, there's a level of understanding when you've been in the business and you've covered these sorts of things that you're, you feel okay talking about these horrible experiences. And the more you talk about them um, and allow yourself to work through it verbally out loud with somebody else, I think is a huge part of the healing process. At least for me personally, it was. So I, I definitely think, and I know, I've, I know I've, I'm repeating myself, but a, a key aspect for me to move forward from the emotional scars of, of covering this story was talking to other journalists mm-hmm. because I felt that they really truly understood what it was like to be at that kind of scene, even if they had not personally lost somebody um, in, in, in some sort of tragic accident or, or, you know, other horrible experience, they understood the, the level of trauma that is experienced at a horrific crash scene like the Air Force crash. Mm-hmm. Katie, I, I want to thank you again for being so open about this. And I promise you that the, the final portion of this podcast is going to be much lighter but before we move on to it, I, I wanted to make sure I at least gave you one last opportunity. Is there anything that we haven't discussed about this that you'd want people to know or you'd want to make sure that you mentioned? Wow, that's always the best question, isn't it? That's the question I end all, all interviews I ever conduct. I end with that question because I think that allows people to really um, open up and say what's what's really on their minds or, or truly in their hearts. And I really think that 
regardless of the situation, whether it's breaking news or your, your general assignment story, if you can just set yourself in the mindset every single time you walk out the door with your camera to turn a story that you say in your head, I am going to do my best because that's what the story deserves. That's what the people involved in this story deserve. And I, I think that 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 for me really encompasses what we do and why what we do is important. Um, I really think that we do play a vital part in, in our country's history and locally and nationally at all levels. We are capturing the history of, of the community that we live in and we, we owe it to those people to, to do our best for them to tell their story in the best way possible. So I think do your best because that's what every single person you do a story with deserves. She is Katie Stern, photojournalist for Como TV in Seattle. This is the Telling the Story podcast, and obviously this has been a very serious topic, but I, I do want to break away from it somewhat just to keep the tradition of the final segment of the podcast, which is advice for younger journalists. And Katie, in addition to you know speaking so beautifully about all this, you've had an accomplished career in your own right thus far, and, and I did want you to talk a little bit about just your journey and the things that have helped you along your way to, you know, a job that you love in Seattle? Wow, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, A, uh, my mother put a camera in my hands when I was seven. Well, that's almost and, not fair. <laughs> <laughs> and my dad helped me build a dark room when I was 14. So... Uh, storytelling and photography has been a passion of mine for a very long time. And I feel lucky and privileged, um, to be able to do that for a living and, you know, to make my, make my bread by telling people stories. I just think that's amazing. Um, career wise, I've had a really wonderful experience at, um, the three stations that I worked at where I was lucky to have awesome um, staff members from assignment desk to reporters to news managers who really um, encouraged the the field crews to be creative and to work hard and to do their best every day. So I feel very fortunate that of all the newsrooms that I've worked in, I've I always felt like I've had a great staff um, around me. And at Como specifically, the reporters, the other photographers, we get down in the ditches every single day and do the dirty work and we love it. And their support is, is really what bolsters me in the times where our job is not so fun. And we have to deal with these really hard stories that are very sad and very emotional. And so, you know, if you are new in this business, feed off the energy and the creativity and um, empower yourself through your coworkers, because those are the people who are going to stand up with you through thick and thin and it, it will, it will pay off. Mm. What are some decisions you made at a, at a young age, at least career wise, not when you first got the camera at age seven, but what are some decisions you made early in your career that you feel like really helped propel you forward? Well, I was an extremely motivated uh, kid in college and 
that motivation really has followed me through my career. So just a quick rundown. I did running start, which in Washington state means you attend community college at the same time that you're attending high school. So I actually graduated with my four year degree from Washington state university in two years because I entered already having my associate's degree. So very, very motivated, go getter, chomping at the bit, um, to get into the real world and, and, and be a journalist. Um, When I was in college, I sent a resume tape to all of the chief photographers in Seattle, and I said, give me a review. What am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? And I got a response back. When I was in Eugene, again, every six months, I sent a tape out, and I said, what am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? Any advice? Not I'm looking for a job, but I want to be a great photographer help me achieve that. Tell me some pointers. Um, I joined NPPA in college. I've been a member ever since. Um, I'm not a particularly competitive person, but I love the ethics behind it. I love the storytelling behind it. Um, so for me, I've, I've been a member for a long time. I've participated in a lot of their workshops. I love the camaraderie from that. So early on, being able to reach out to people through that um, venue was really, really empowering. Um, so I went from college to Eugene. I was there for 10 months. I got a job in San Diego. I uh, was there for a little over two years and got my job in Seattle. And all of that was because I was continually sending out my tape and asking for critiques. Give me a review. What am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? How can I improve? And I think keeping that open dialogue with the people that I eventually was aspiring to work for showed them how much I was willing to work for it and how hard I was trying to improve myself and be a better journalist. So that was something that I think was very, very key in my career was making sure that I was not just working on my story every day, but working on my craft as a whole and constantly looking for feedback. And I know a lot of younger journalists, they want those critiques from more experienced people and more talented people, but they're just straight up intimidated to even send out an email and, and, you know, they don't want to waste anyone's time or don't want to be a nuisance to someone. You uh, were able to bridge that gap. How did you do it? Well, I'm not really scared of anything, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm a pretty gregarious person. And I, I, I think, I think for me, one of the reasons that I did not find it intimidating or I did not find that I was being a nuisance was I wasn't asking for a lot. Um, I didn't send an hour long tape. I sent three stories. Mm -hmm. I wasn't asking for an interview. I just said, shoot me an email or, or give me a phone call. So I was doing my best to get, a critique or a review while also keeping in mind that this is a very busy person. They probably don't have a lot of time for me. So if I can, if I can send them something that in total is going to take them 15 minutes to look at and write a quick review, then that is going to bolster my chances of them responding to me. And I got a response with every, with every tape I sent out. That's great. And, uh, and speaking of gregarious, uh, it's interesting what happens when you, when one Googles your name, uh, the first story that comes up is, uh, apparently a few years ago, you survived a 50 foot fall while rock climbing. 
And, uh, and I do have to ask about that because uh, that is certainly something that few of us have ever experienced. And I hope that none of you ever do, ever. <laughs> I'm hoping um, that this podcast will replace that story as the top, top search on Google. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. So um, growing up in the Northwest, um, I'm born in Alaska. My family moved down to the peninsula down here in Washington, and um, I've stayed on the West Coast my whole life. I am a pretty avid outdoors person. Um, I love to hike. I love to backpack. And I love to rock climb. And uh, despite our best preparations and our best um, processes in place, there are times that accidents happen. And on that day that I was climbing, um, and that's exactly what happened. There was a um, miscommunication. A command was said. A command was received. Uh, Unfortunately, they were not in response to the same question. And so... um, I was expecting to be lowered on a rope that I was tied into and the person at the bottom was expecting me to repel. And, uh, most climbing accidents happen on repel or, or somewhere in that, in that process. So, uh, it was very windy. I couldn't see my belayer. I shouted a command. He responded. And, um, because of the wind and because of the lack of sight, I was certain that he had, said my heard my command properly and that I was going to be lowered and my belayer at the bottom was certain that I had heard his command and that I would be re- repelling and so I stepped off um it was uh 40 feet um I I stepped off my anchor and um into thin air huh. I um hit a tree several times on the way down which was actually very fortunate because it flipped me over several times. So when I landed, I landed um, on my left leg and broke my femur bone clean through. Mm. Your femur bone can withstand about 2,000 pounds of force. So if my bone had not broken, if I had landed on my back, I would have shattered my spine. I would not be here today. Um, But I was very fortunate that the way that I landed, I landed in dirt, not on rock. Um, and then I slid. So I slid another 15 to 20 feet. So all in all, it was between a 55 and 60 foot, um, descent. Um, and fortunately, uh, search and rescue was able to get to me in about two and a half to three hours time. There were two climbers next to us who actually called 911 before I hit the ground. Um, but we were in a very well-known climbing area but the trails are not marked. So unless you know the route there, there's no direction on where you're going. So, um, it took the Bellevue fire department, um, two and a half hours to get to me. They stabilized me. They got me on a backboard and then King County Sheriff's office was able to, um, conduct an airlift, which was extremely challenging because of the wind. Um, they had to do three passes before they were able to hover, in a stable enough location and lower down a basket and pull me out. And I was rushed off to Harborview. So it was out before the airport crash. It was the worst thing that I had ever lived through. And honestly, surviving that, um, emotionally helped in working through the day that we lost Bill and Gary, because, I just kept thinking, if I can survive that, I can survive this. And um, it was it was a physically 
um, physically, it was the hardest thing I've ever gone through. I would never wish it on anybody. It was, it was so excruciatingly painful, but everything went right. I had help relatively quickly. I was transported very safely and I got to a hospital that has an amazing set of emergency room doctors and I was able to get back and rock climb um, within a few months. That's incredible. Oh my goodness, what a story. And, you, and, and obviously you were the subject of news at that point too. I mean, I, I obviously saw online and your station did stories about you. Was that... I would assume at that point, that's one of those situations where you probably got a lot of support coming in from viewers who were hearing about you. Uh, what was that experience like? Well, they they wanted to do a story while I was in the hospital. And I said no. <laughs> I I was black and blue. I was on a lot of medication. And I was, honestly, I was in a lot of pain. And so it that was not something that I was willing to add to my stress. So the first story they did, um, I gave, I said, use my Facebook pictures. I've got tons of pictures of me climbing on there. Go for it. Um, but for me, the important part of the very first story they did was the search and rescue team. They went out in some pretty, pretty hairy, windy conditions. Um, and they deserved all the credit for being able to safely get to me and get me out of there. Mm. So that first story for me, I was, I was physically not in a space where I could concentrate very well. And I didn't want to do an interview because I didn't know if I was going to honestly be able to stay awake for it. So the very first story I, I said, please just talk to the rescuers because they're the people who deserve the credit. Later, they did another story on the same rescue team that, that, that uh, worked on me. And I said, okay, I'll do an interview. Um, and being a photographer, that was the most uncomfortable thing I think I'd ever had to do because I'm so used to the protection of being behind that lens and having that viewfinder in my face and, um, not trying to make sure that I sound like I know what the heck I'm talking about. I get to just be, you know, the goofy camera person back there that kind of lightens the mood and loosens people up a little bit. And now all of a sudden I'm on the other side and it's this very serious topic that was an, an extremely scary, stressful, upsetting, painful experience for me. And now I have to talk about it in front of people. And that was, that was really, really hard. And I, I set I set some ground rules when the Como crew came in. I said, okay, I'm not going to talk about this, and I'm not going to talk about this, but I will talk about anything else because it was just, it was too hard. And they respected me, and the story was great. They did a fabulous job. I was very happy with it. I felt like the story got out there and was told very well. But it was really nice knowing that, the things that I was knew that I was going to have a hard time talking about, I just set those ground rules up front, and they respected it. And I, I don't think the story lacked for anything, and it left me feeling really good about it, and it, it left them with a, a great story. And so I think that 
when people go into these situations where they're going to be interviewing somebody who has survived something horrific or has lost somebody in a horrific manner, there are going to be things that are just too painful for them to talk about. And that's okay. They're allowed to reserve some of that for themselves because maybe they've got some more healing that needs to be done. Maybe they've got, you know, another few steps of working through something before they can talk about that. And I think as long as we can respect that, your story is not going to suffer and the person's going to come away feeling really good that they, that they spoke to you. And I've been on scenes where, you know, where there are multiple cameras and, and uh, multiple stations interviewing a, you know, a parent who's just lost a child or something like that. And sometimes you watch reporters who you can tell they're digging for tears or they're digging for that emotional soundbite. And it's, and as someone who is, is both a photographer and reporter as an MMJ, it's always very upsetting to me to watch people. Sometimes it seems like try to manipulate someone who's going through such a traumatic experience. And obviously I'm sure for many journalists, it's difficult to know where to kind of draw that line between wanting to tell the story and tell a proper story, but also, respecting the emotions that as a journalist, you probably don't fully understand. And, and I think that's where learning empathy is really important. And it, it, it reminds me of actually a, a passage um, that I spoke to at the workshop and it's, it's part of the um, ethics guidelines from NPPA. And one of the guidelines is, intrude on private moments of grief only when the public has an overriding and justifiable need to see. And I think that we, we, we want to see the grief to make sure that the folks at home understand the gravity of the story and under, and, and help them see what we see and see how much it's affecting um, the family member or, or, or whomever it is that we're speaking to. But you have to be sensitive to that person's needs and you can't crush them. You can't push so hard that you crush somebody and force them into a position where they have essentially lost control. Some people are going to cry and some people are not. And I think fishing for it is very disrespectful. I don't think it adds to the story because you can show grief without that. There are plenty of ways to show grief without that, that fishing for that soundbite and really pushing that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Katie, uh, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful interview. I, I feel like we've touched on so much. Is there anything we haven't touched on on any of this that you wanted to add? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I feel like we've touched on so many things. Um, I just I thank you so much for for contacting me and and asking me to be on your show. I think that talking about trauma and journalism and, and how the two are forever intertwined um, is so important and is something that I think is slowly we're starting to talk about it more and feel comfortable talking about it more. I think for many, many years and, and even today in some situations, there's, there's a, a stigma that comes 
with showing any kind of emotion as a journalist. And I'm really hoping that we can wash that away and we can recognize the fact that if we are connecting emotionally with the person we're doing a story with um, in, in whatever way that is, that will come through in our story and we are doing them a better, a better service and we are doing the public a better service. And I really hope that we can, as, as journalists among our colleagues, talk to each other more about the trauma that we've experienced and make sure that we are working through it and, and making sure that there is no stigma attached to those of us who, who do show emotion in, in some of those really, really horrible situations. And you're right. You know, in, in newsrooms, we're always so focused on the day to day that we don't often talk about larger issues in general. And and this is one thing that certainly is not discussed enough. So Katie, I, I thank you for your openness. Thank you for your, sincerity and uh thank you so much for joining me on the podcast thank you so much for having me all right and the telling the story blog updates every monday and wednesday the website is tellingthestoryblog.com rate and review this podcast on itunes and thank you for listening to this episode of the telling the story podcast we'll see you next time